Jen Bosworth Ramirez. And I'm Gina Polici. We went to theater school together. We survived it, but we didn't quite understand it. 20 years later, we're digging deep, talking to our guests about their experiences and trying to make sense of it all. We survived theater school, and you will too. Are we famous yet? I don't know. It's, it's just, just it's, all it's so mess. unknowable. <laughs> it's such a That's mess. That's the thing. It's all so unknowable. And it's, and like last night I was saying to Aaron, I, you know, sometimes I just, I, I do to him what I think other people do, which is like, you're a doctor. Tell me what's going to happen. <laughs> Predict the future. Tell me how it's going to go down. Which, I mean, it's not completely fantastical that I would do that because he, he does like, he knows a lot really of abreast. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, what do you say? So well, so the the worst, like the most conservative prediction about when life can resume mm-hmm. as normal, yeah, is summer twenty twenty two. Great, okay, that's but 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 but, but. Um, he thinks that by this summer it'll be somewhat more like it was this past summer, which okay. was like. Yeah, you had to be really mindful. Lots of things were still closed, but you could like live your kind life of a little be more. out and about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like like for example, um, at the beginning of the school year, I had enrolled the kids in certain extracurriculars that I just pulled them from, even though they actually are still going on. One of them being indoor gymnastics. Like hell no, am I going to send my kids That's rolling around in some dirty ass mat? That's called indoor exactly. COVID as a as a yeah. as a elective. All right. Yeah. So I did that for the fall and stopped it. But but like I would be okay with something like that. Maybe if it goes the way he's saying it, might over the summer I might be right. okay with having them do certain activities. So that would just just any any ease up on the. St- strictures would would be really nice it would be so i would greatly appreciate it it would be nice yeah and and it's very bizarre and la is a really tricky it's in a really newsom is gonna have to probably resign even though it's not really his fault um or he won't run again just because it's so like so now they're saying one out of every three people in la has it in la county just completely wild so wild that's like one of the wildest things i've ever heard i'm like what are you talking about oh my god that's like everyone in my apartment complex what are you talking about so we have to we'll just have to be super careful and if my doctor says go you know it's fine you know i my heart is okay if as long as i take care of it it's going to be fine and i think that in six weeks it'll be we'll see we'll see i'm open i'm not going to get crazy yeah, no, that's the thing. You, you, yeah, that doesn't help any situation to get crazy. But wait a minute. So, like, what's the thinking about what could – why California is so bad? Okay, so the thinking is this. This is what I've heard from people. So California, especially Southern California, is so densely populated with frontline workers that live oh. in multi-generational families. Um, there's Got Miles it. in his cape. Hey, Lumberjack. Hey, Lumberjack, says Gina Miles. Hey, good looking. He said, hey, good looking. <laughs> okay. So um, so the thinking is, the thinking is that that is what's going on, is that frontline workers are living in multi-generational homes, mostly people of color, that cannot not go to work, that make very little, that don't have child care, all the whole bit. 
and then they, that's how it's going. So he's, oh, you mean it's income inequality? Right, right exactly. <laughs> what a surprise! I can't believe that that's responsible. <laughs> Shocking. So, oh, so he, he'll so he'll sad. pay the price. Yeah, Newsom will pay the price for that, and probably the maybe not the mayor, but probably Newsom will will not run again. He's mediocre, but I mean it could be worse. Um, but anyway, so that's what they think is going on because they can't really. They, they don't really know again, the end, but they're, that's what scientists are saying. Cause I didn't understand it at all, but now I know there's so many frontline workers in LA. It's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. So that's, yeah. what's going on there. Um, yeah. Um, I wish you could come here. I wish we had a, a, a bungalow <laughs> to give you guys. You need, to do, you need to get a little coach house, build your own, a shed, a shed. Oh, well, Aaron is obsessed with getting a tiny house. You could put it, he, could you put it on your property? That's what he wants to do. He wants to get a tiny house and put it on our property. And I'm, and I'm like, it's, I mean, I'm, it's fine if he wants to do that. But the way, the reason that he wants to do it is he thinks like maybe his mother or my mother will oh. live there. And I'm like, okay, they, they don't want to do that. No. They don't want to live in a tiny house. They, no. they want to live in a place where they can go down and have their meals with company if they want, or they can stay in their room if they, you know what I mean? Like, that, or, or I guess I'm projecting. That's what I would want. I would not want to live in a tiny house. My mother would not I mean, want, if she were alive, she'd be like, screw you in your tiny house. I'd like a moderately sized house where I can putter, putter around and have all my tchotchkes around. That That's really yeah. what she yeah. yeah, you can't have tchotchkes yeah. in it. And your mom has a lot of tchotchkes oh, that are my nice tchotchkes. The, she's the tchotchke queen and of beautiful. America. And she wants to show them. So a tiny house. Oh, she'd need a tiny house just for her tchotchkes. She'd need a tchotchke right. house. Um, right. And, and that's, that's right. defeats that's the right. purpose. Yeah. So, the, so. so anyway. But it, plus, we could... Yeah, it defeats the purpose. Yeah. And in any case, we could never put a tiny house on this property because we live, it's very hilly where we live and it's basically solid rock. So anytime anybody wants to do anything, you have to like dynamite blast through all this rock and it's, you know, and, and yeah, it's like a whole endeavor. New England is really, I, I can, sometimes I put myself in the mindset of like, wow, what would it have been like to be a colonist like that would have sucked did you ever watch by the way those shows that they had on pbs where they would take a fan yes wasn't that it was crazy fascinating fascinating where they had to live off the pioneer, pioneer house, or something colonial like house yeah they did like for different eras and different regions i mean i could watch that all day i think i could watch that so all fascinating day. right did you finish yeah. wild wild country I did. I finished Wild Wild Country and I started, um, uh, it's not cult related, but the writing, I started Sherlock again. So um, I am not necessarily a huge, uh, you know, Benedict Cumberbatch fan or whatever. I call him um, Clementine Dimmer Switch. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) Yeah. So I call him Clementine Dimmer Switch and I'm not a huge, I mean, I like him, but what is fascinating is the writing. So the writing in Sherlock, it's these two guys, of course, two white guys, of course, I think. Um, but whatever. The 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 writing is stupendous, Gina. It is like mind blowing. And it reminds me a little of our show where it's like 
uh, of Kiki because it's so um, it's very detailed worlds they've created. Now, look, they they started out with you know the the, the stories themselves were mm-hmm. there, so right. it's not that original. Based on it's loosely based on, but I'm just like, oh, these writers, oh, thank. When you see good writing, it's like phenomenal. It really stands you know? out, and so. Oh, it stands out and I am in awe of how they do it. And I'm obsessed with the idea of leaving Easter eggs along the way. And also everything ties in, in this really weird, weird way where you're like, oh, these people are weird. So I like knowing you, you get the sense that the writers and creators are real weird. And I love that. Like they're not regular people. You're like, oh, you don't you don't function like a regular person. I know you, your brain is, and that's how I live. Cause I'm always thinking about who's going to kill who and mm-hmm. who could have, who could have this kind of kink or this weird thing that then comes back to haunt them. And, you know, I didn't know that regular people don't think like that about killers and stuff all the time. Oh yeah. Well, yeah, not all the time. Yeah. I, even I don't think about it all the time. <laughs> I guess I don't think about it all the time, but I think about it a lot. Like, like who in this, cause I'm in this small town right now in Wisconsin called Fort Atkinson. And I, I walk along the path to get my exercise and there's always a local. And I'm like, I bet he is, I bet he does some weird, like chainsaw woodworking, mm-hmm. but also be into some weird <laughs> shit. murder for hire. <laughs> slash murder for hire slash, um, yeah. Taxidermy slash, you, think you there's know, there's any, um, Mm, conspiracy theorists out there remember we talked about oh. like why do conspiracy theorists always live in these weird ass places how small is this town by the way pretty okay. small uh i don't know i don't know how but it's not it's how big is yours your, your city is big right i think we're talking maybe 10 oh that's teensy 20 that's teensy why, so wrong. why does your friend live there because there's a university, so oh, there is right. a university. It's a small. It's it's. It, I could be so wrong. Someone's going to be listening to this and be like, "That idiot bitch thinks there's." But no, <laughs> I anyway, think about that all the time. I put it in the program notes. Don't worry. Okay, good. She's a fucking idiot. Put that in the program notes. <laughs> <laughs> she thought it was a, a meristocracy. Hey, let me run this by you. good i'm not just pretty good i'm good i'm i'm really good my thing i wanted to run by you Mm -hmm. is um so i okay i really like comedy i really like following certain comedians i there's a lot of bad comedians but there's a lot of people who are really telling the truth about life. And I really appreciate it. And I started to watch this um, documentary about the comedy store, um, which is, you know, in LA and, and it has like such a long history. And Mm -hmm. I have heard about it so much from different podcasts that I listen to. And mm, so there's some comedians on there that were featured who have had their problematic behavior highlighted Mm -hmm. in some way in the last, you know, like five years, Louis CK being the primary one. Now I really took the Louis CK thing hard because I loved him. Mm -hmm. I I thought he was, I thought he was the greatest comic of all time. Mm 
Like I, I really, there's nobody else who I, I held. I mean, I felt like inspired by listening to his comedy and I loved his television show. Mm-hmm. So when, <clears throat> when it was revealed that he was a shitty guy, I was like, I, I, I can't, I can't take it. Like, I can't. Right. I, you just, it's like what, what I'm learning here is you can't have any heroes. You can't have anybody that you really look up to. A lot of comedians, I mean, I think maybe even most comedians are of this camp that like, you can't cancel people. You can't say, well, because they did this, then we can never hear from them again. Mm-hmm. And I understand that. And there's a part of me that agrees with that. But then I also understand the other perspective, which is just like, for every Louis C.K., there's 10 women who have something equally really important to say who don't have the opportunity to because of the way that things are structured. And so, yeah, maybe they don't need to be canceled for this particular. And by the way, I, 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 I'm of the opinion that nobody ever really gets canceled. Louis CK is fine. (laughs) Like they have consequences, but you know, with the exception of Harvey Weinstein, nobody actually gets canceled. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, 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 I'm, I'm really of, two minds about it and and i was recently accused of censorship so i'm i'm like paying attention to whether or not Mm. i'm identifying with censorship which i don't fundamentally want to align myself with but it's hard to know like who should should we be uh pushing if not canceling pushing to the side because they're and the things that he did were not okay by any stretch and like exactly the biggest part of the problem using your power Mm -hmm. wielding it over people who have no choice but to Mm -hmm. sit there and stunned you know silence that said i do also think that there's like uh a a spectrum Mm -hmm. he's not he's not harvey weinstein at least Mm -hmm. as far as i can tell and and anyway, so I'm just grappling with it. Like I'm, I, I've been grappling with this for a long, for long, ever for the last four years. I've been grappling with like, do you separate the art from the artist, and how do you grapple with all that? So I'm just wondering what your thoughts are. Yeah, it's a it's a super interesting thing. I, I feel the same way, and I also feel like some people should just be canceled. I, I, I you, um, you, you got caught. It being a, a total disgusting human, um, right? It's not fair, probably, to cancel you. I, I'm not saying it's fair, but people, but but the con- if the consequence for you is you are the token canceled person after masturbating in front of your whoever, then you're canceled. And and mm-hmm. if you want to redeem yourself and come back, okay, well l- let's take it one step at a time. But there are certain. I, it's, it, I feel the same way. I don't, I think people make mistakes, but they, but they, like you said, it's on a spectrum and that kind of abusive mistake is more, um, it's hard for me to, yeah, feel at all badly for, for someone mm-hmm. who, who, who behaves in that way. But he, I thought he was brilliant too. I, I still, and, and I, I don't punish people for still watching. Some people are like, you still watch Woody Allen? You still watch? Mm-hmm. I don't, 
I don't have judgment. That's their, for me, that's the art they put into the world. I don't judge people if they still watch it. I still find Woody, some of Woody Allen's films hysterical. And I know mm-hmm. people in my, in my, um, my old cohort in, at school were like, how can you still watch that? And I'm like, well, it, I just still find it funny. I don't know. Same with watching, mm-hmm. like for me, watching Eddie Murphy's Raw and Delirious. It's filled with sexist, homophobic, horrific stuff. It's also fucking funny to me. I don't know what else to say. That made me, if that makes me uh, flawed, then I'm flawed. And, uh, but, but I know it's tricky. I feel this, it's tricky. I don't know. That's funny. I was just watching Delirious last night because I got on this thing about like everybody really loves Richard Pryor and I'd never really listened to his comedy. So I I started. um, And I think it's, I, I, my perspective about it is like if you were, discovering it 20 years ago 30 years ago you would have been like oh yeah he's there's nobody like him yeah and 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 i'm not arguing that point but it it i it i was not rolling on the floor laughing let's right let's just put it that way i roll Um, less now watching it Mm -hmm. yeah yeah but i had the same thing so i'm watching the eddie murphy thing and it's i mean the second you see him he's you start laughing he's hilarious (laughs) just thinking about him (laughs) Just thinking about him is hilarious. He's so talented. He's so he's such a dynamo. You know yeah. what I mean? Like I love dynamo performers. <laughs> but then you know, it's in the first five minutes of Delirious, he starts talking about faggots, and I'm just yeah. like, oh, I okay. <laughs> why, I did, why did it have to be like this? I know. And and and, and comedians would say, this is the other thing I'm grappling with. Comedians would say. These are jokes. It's a joke. This is a person who is essentially mocking that way of thinking. But that line gets a little blurry for me because unless you're you're just supposed to guess when right. somebody's when it's a joke and when it's somebody serious. Like I listened to Patrice O'Neill on a podcast and everybody says like he's hilarious and he is, but he's extremely sexist. It just it ends up being like what kind of the the way that it gets decided whether for me whether or not I'm going to listen is like do, do I have room to absorb this type of energy or do I want to absorb this type of energy into my life right now or maybe is now not you know not the right time maybe now I need to be listening to to somebody else but yeah, I, yeah go ahead well I was just going to say can people be funny is there a way for us to be funny without being without being offensive. Um, or, or abusive or yeah, all the isms without all our isms coming out is, is it possible? I'm trying to think of like, because, you know, like Sarah Silverman, Amy Schumer, they're all offense. I I don't Mm -hmm. know. I'm not sure. (laughs) I'm not sure. Yeah, no, it's very, it's very confusing. And then I follow like a lot of, um, I think comedians who consider themselves feminists on Twitter and they say offensive things too. I, you know, then I think about people like Jerry Seinfeld, who his thing is like, I, to me, you know, he, he doesn't, he never works blue. He never uses um, profanity. And he says, it's really just because he doesn't want to, he wants the challenge of not relying on an F-bomb or whatever. And actually it's also because speaking of another person who was a big, 
shattering blow for me was Bill Cosby. Mm. I mean, I couldn't have loved a TV show more than I loved the Cosby show. Yeah. And I bought into the whole thing of like, he's America's dad and he's, he's the kind of man that men should aspire to be. He's the kind of father that fathers should aspire to be. When I first heard, uh, Maybe it was Eddie Murphy, but certainly more recent comedians like um, who's the person who was famously saying, you pull up your pants, Bill Cosby, you know, because he was he was Um, constantly telling comedians to pull up their pants. Well, I think it was Hannibal Buress, wasn't it? Yes, yes, right, Hannibal. And I really like him. Me too. So when he started saying that, I was like, this is before I everything really came out. And I thought, oh, okay, well, maybe there's something there. Maybe that, you know, maybe that means something. And it's it, and it's not like there's a answer. It's not like there's a well, it's this or it's that. It's it's all it's in this conversation. The truth the truth is in this in the dialogue of it. But. It just I get like confused about my own feelings when it comes to stuff like this. It's um, I, I, I feel the same way. And when I worked in Hollywood as an assistant, I was exposed to some, some real weird stuff. But and looking back, I'm like, oh, that was not OK. That was not OK. However, some of it was freaking fun and funny. So mm-hmm. I. I I feel so, I feel like people are like, oh my God, you witnessed X, Y, and Z. You should report that. I'm like, I participated in a lot of inappropriate office behavior. Um, Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I just, you know, I don't know. I feel, I grapple with it too. And I, I'm not sure. Uh, I think maybe everyone has to decide for themselves what is, okay with them and not but then it's like i don't know yeah it's a tricky it's you're right it's an ongoing conversation well then there's the perspective that um you know that you were mentioning in it's either the last episode we aired yeah maybe i think it was in the jen ellison episode mm-hmm. in, in the let me run this by you you were saying um ab- about representation and about the type of stories that get told so like if you the whole reason that there were these factions in entertainment, like there was the Latino comedy world that was like a world unto itself that white people, unless they were comedians or comedy nerds, like I didn't know anything about, right? Mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about these these comics. It's less segregated in a way because it's just more available. So there is now a, a, a wider variety of stories. But what if our whole sense of, funny and everything is really just determined for us by the stories that have been told what what if there's a perspective out there that manages and and there probably is that manages to not ever be offensive to anybody and nonetheless be hysterical wouldn't it be nice to find out like wouldn't it be nice to so then, so that brings me back to like, okay, yeah. So we just have to cancel people or pause them temporarily if for no other reason so that other people have yes. an opportunity to, right, to to say something. Yes, I totally, totally, totally agree. I think that's right. It's right. It's like, go away for a while 
and and let us fill the fill the void that's there some different storytellers and see what we can do and if we can actually make people laugh and feel without being totally abusive and 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 um hurtful on a, a lot of levels yeah i think you're right i think i think that's a great that's a great perspective wow yeah, well, so let's do it. Let's be those people. Yeah, I'm down. So I want to hear what you you performed. Was that what what happened? What did you perform? Your piece, a monologue? Oh, oh no, no, sorry, I didn't perform. Um, oh. my play, uh, my oh. play, Carlsbad. Did I tell you about that one? No, not at all. <laughs> I wrote a play about two bats. Oh yes, um, yes, yes, yes. You yeah, told me that. Yeah. yeah, I didn't know that you actually yeah. finished it. I want to read it. Yeah. I've only written this one scene. I think it's going to be a, can it be a one act if it has multiple scenes? I always forget. Yes. yes. A one, okay. All right. Yeah. So I think it's going to be a one act with three scenes. Awesome. Um, so I've only written one of the scenes and we, we did it last night or the, two actors read it last night. And one thing I learned that I've, I've noticed multiple times before, but never like said, okay, so I have to make a change here. If I'm going to ask people to read my work, we have to really rehearse it because I have a lot of subtext and everything that I write. And, you know, I can't, it, it doesn't do well with this wasn't quite a cold reading. We did rehearse it, but it, it, it needed a lot. I needed a lot of exploration. It's kind of like Pinter in a way. Not, not that I'm comparing myself to Pinter, but I'm just saying like the subtext is my thing is subtext heavy. Um. So what's interesting to me is, I think I've told you, we've had so many things that have gone up recently that it, it, it ends and everybody's like, that was amazing. That was, but then when you listen to the comments about it, it kind of stops with that was amazing. Like there's nothing specific to the, play, yeah, there's nothing to the playwright that I would think is actually that helpful in developing it. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, a lot of people didn't like my piece last night, but we had like a really long discussion about it. And I wanted to be like, okay, see what's happening here. You didn't like my play, which is fine, but we're still talking about it. Whereas if it's something that everybody likes and agrees upon and thinks was hilarious, that's all there is to say about it. Yeah, that was good. It's like I read Tina Fey bossy pants and we read it for a book club and the book club starts and everybody goes, yeah, it, it was funny. <laughs> like there was nothing else right. to say about it. This is not a good book on some level. <laughs> right. I mean, it's like, it was, it was fine. It was enjoyable. It was, there was nothing wrong with it, but there's nothing to discuss about it. And so anyway, so that, so that I got some good notes. I got some good feedback. I'm going to make some rewrites and we're going to. Oh my God. That's such a great, great, great thing of like, if they're still taught, that's what undeniable is, right? If they're still talking about your work, they don't have to like it, right? But if they're still talking about it 25, 30 minutes later about why they didn't get it or like it or whatever, then clearly, it, it like you're saying, it flipped some switches in people. So I guess yeah. if you flipped a switch, that's a good thing. You know what I mean? Versus, and that's I, great. Good. I, okay. Yeah. Good. And I guess- and I guess that relates to the other thing that we we're just talking about, like maybe the only point of comedy or the real point of it, at least how it is now, is to to be part of the cultural conversation.
today on the podcast we have Bradley Walker, Walker Texas Ranger. Is what I like to call him. He's, uh, he's from, from Texas. Texas. He's a um, sort of a jack of all trades. He has a, like a lot of skill sets and a lot of interests. And um, he's a voiceover. He's a voiceover king. I mean, his setup is amazing. He'll he'll knock your socks off with a voiceover. Yeah. So please enjoy our interview with Bradley Walker. Pretty much. So, so anyway, congratulations. You survived theater school. Thank you. I feel good about it. Yeah, you should. It's a huge accomplishment. Yeah. And so basically we're wanting to hear about your experience. We like to ask people about why they decided to go to theater school, why they picked mm. the one that they picked, if they auditioned at mm-hmm. other places, had dreams of going to other places, mm-hmm. the what the experience was like once you were there and then how it all looks to you 20 years hence. Okay. You're going to prompt me through. Yes, that, right? sure. absolutely. I'll, I'll start through the top. So did um, you always know you wanted to go to theater school? No, uh, I, I don't need, I don't even think I really knew that such a thing existed up until my senior year in high school. Uh, that, uh, which was strange because my father uh, my father and my stepfather, both musicians, uh, both went to both advanced degrees in uh, music performance and education. Um, and I never really considered that theater, even though I was so heavily involved in it since I was 13. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never really thought like, oh, is this what I'm going to go to college to do? Oh, well, I'll go and study criminal psychology or something like that. And so senior year, uh, a friend of mine just happened to say, oh, yeah, I'm going to audition for uh, SMU, uh, Southern Methodist University in Dallas, which at the time, that was a really hot school. And some uh, friends of mine uh, who were ahead in years had gone there. So uh, my friend, the reason, it turned out the reason that my friend told me was because they needed a ride and I had a car. Ah! Um, So I wound up driving them. And as I was driving or a couple of days before we made the trip, I was like, oh, I may as well sign up to audition too. I did not take it seriously at all. I had no idea what was laying ahead. Uh, high public Texas public education system. I didn't even know who Viola Spolin was. Right. Um, right. And so, of course, they put us through, you know, warm up theater games and then do individual improv and you deliver a monologue and so forth. And then a couple of weeks later, um, my friend did not get in. This is not a brag. I felt terrible. And for you him. got in. I didn't get in. Um, I think it was. I think the theater wing of SMU is called the Meadows School of the Arts. My friend Jim Hart will kill me if I got that wrong. But um, they called me in and essentially said, "We want you to come to school here, and we'll give you money to come to school here, but your grades are horrific." And they were, they were <laughs> awful. <laughs> um, I was, I was a shit student. Um, and I, I was really, really bad. And uh, so anyhow, they, they, over a couple of weeks of, of talking to some very cool people at middle school, um, they essentially said like, you can come here, we'll help you with your finances, but you essentially have to do a year of remedial classes. Mm-hmm. And oh. And so I started looking at schools with prestigious acting degrees. And 
I found a couple like Yale, of course, was on the list. Um, uh, there was another one in New York. I can't remember. Maybe it was Sydney Purchase. Mm-hmm. I can't remember. Um, but most of them, it didn't matter that you had 40 hours. Uh, they wanted to see your entire school record. And I was really, really gun shy about letting anybody see what a terrible student I was in high school. <laughs> um, and DePaul, if you were a transfer student, they didn't want your high school transcripts. Okay, there you go. So there you go. I, uh, so I was like, okay, uh, this is a viable option. And uh, and yeah, so came up to Chicago to audition, uh, auditioned for John Bridges, Jim O. I can't remember who the third was. I think it was Betsy Hamilton. Um, and, you know, good day. It was in the height of winter. I'd never seen snow like that. I'd never been pelted in the face. Mm-hmm. A Texas kid. I'd yeah. never been pelted in the face with chunks of ice like that. Right. Uh, it was insane. And my mom had like a little weekend of it. And we went back down and I really kind of forgot about it because they didn't let people know until summer right spring summer yeah it was kind of late late mm-hmm. yeah uh and melissa Meltzer called me and uh she was <laughs> she was she was funny like awkwardly gracious about it and and said like you know want to congratulate you you've been accepted and i was like of course i'm on an old corded phone standing in my kitchen and i'm like dancing around but trying not to pull the phone off <laughs> I remember that. I remember that very specifically. So, um, uh, so yeah, I was really happy. And then uh, I didn't, I didn't get much money, but I qualified for a shit ton of loans. Um, so, since you, it was kind of like you and your mom, you were the the dynamic duo. Did she want <laughs> you to leave? I mean, did she want you to stay in Texas, or was she happy to see you go to a great school? Mm, that's such a good question. Um, she was uh, a, a wonderful parent um she really i i think she knew what she was supposed to do and she had like a really good grasp on that but she she'd never had an opportunity to try it so there were moments when i could kind of tell like so for instance to answer your question uh did she want me to leave no but did she realize that she had had to support me emotionally uh, if I wanted to leave? A hundred percent she knew. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember, actually, it's funny that you should say that because, uh, again, when I went to North Texas for that year, North Texas was, that campus was a 45-minute drive from my house. So I was home every two weeks, if not every weekend. It was really, really easy. And I did it for every reason that you can think of. I, I would come home to do free laundry. I would come home to get free food. Uh, I would come home to hang out with my friends who were also home who went to other schools within, you know, that two-hour radius. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and that was just, you know, my first year of living alone. It was not a big deal. But the next year when we came up, we didn't drive up. I just packed, you know, a couple of heavy bags. And that was my moving to DePaul thing. And the two of us came up and she rented a car and we drove to the campus. And I think she spent a day in a, in a, spent a night in a hotel. Uh, And then the last day, I remember very specifically standing in the parking lot of what was Monroe Hall and uh, giving her a hug and a kiss. And she said, good luck. And she just broke. <laughs> she, she, she broke completely. Yeah. And I was like, mom, what's the big deal? I'm going to be home. I'll be home in a month. 
I mean, she she worked for American Airlines. Oh, um, okay. So I, had, I had flight benefits. I think I remember and, this. Yeah, yeah, and so I would fly home frequently, and uh, on you know, and of course this is pre nine eleven, so planes flew with empty seats. Right, right. <laughs> so as a as an airline brat, you could just show up and say like, "Hey, I'm I'm Nancy Walker's son. Can I please get on the next flight to DFW?" And they're like, "Oh, not the next one, but a one after that. You want to hang out?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I'm used to this." So yeah, um, so I went home frequently, but I realized much later that. Uh, and again, this is harkening back to your question. I realized much later that that was when she realized that I'm probably never coming home yeah. and, and, yeah. I, and I'm, right. I'm never moving back to Texas. Right. And I haven't, and I don't regret that, but yeah. And in terms of what, you know, did she know? Yeah. She fucking knew. Yeah, of course she did. <laughs> she felt it in her bones, I'm sure. Yeah. And so you were at Monroe Hall. That's, that was your dorm. Yeah. I was at Monroe Hall for two years. Uh, and then I was at McCabe our third year. And then my fourth year, I finally had an apartment. Yay. <laughs> Yay. I was at Monroe Hall as well. So I was at Monroe Hall and I think your wife was my I, I RA. Was, say, was, was your, was your RA very, very blonde? Noel. That's my wife. Oh my gosh. That was my RA. I uh-huh. we were, we gave her such problems because I was on the quiet floor, which is uh-huh. like, why would you do that? My friend Jason and I, who love to scream at each other, were on the quiet yeah. floor, and she had to put up. And anyway, she was lovely. We were terrible, mm-hmm. but anyway. So that's your wife. Congratulations. Is that? Is that well, so thank you, you so much. That's where you met. That is where we met. Um, we met. Uh, I was still in Monroe, actually, the first time that we dated. And she loves to tell the story because uh, I I guess in retrospect, nobody from DePaul is going to get in touch with us and and get us in trouble. Um, No. But for those who are listening, you have to set the scene. I was on the sixth floor on the men's side, and she was the RA on the sixth floor on the women's side. There was, at that time, no go-between between the two sides. If you wanted to go from one wing of the building to the other, you had to take the elevator all the way down to the lobby, cross over and come all the way back up. So this is not a convenient thing. Uh, My roommate, Chris was away doing whatever. And so Noel was spending the night in my room on the men's side uh, in Monroe hall. And uh, we're laying there and it's pretty late. And she heard, she hears screaming. She hears screaming coming from out in uh, uh, out in the in the lobby in the in the common area, and she's like, "I might have to go and check on that." And I'm like, "I don't know if you want to do that." And then it went on for another minute, and she's like, "I have to go and check on that." So she like crawls out of bed and like throws on uh, you know a sweater and some leggings, and then like opens up the door like in ready for confrontation mode. <laughs> And five or six guys who lived on uh, on that side, my my neighbors were watching a horror film in the common area. Oh, <laughs> I'm so glad it wasn't me. It was. I'm so glad it wasn't yeah. me. I thought she was going to say, yeah. Boswell getting crazy." No, no, it was not Boz getting nuts. Uh, it could have easily like, been and, though. <laughs> yeah, and then at that point, like you know, at least five, and I guess probably in the next couple of days, like everybody on my floor knew I was uh, in a relationship with the RA on the other side. 
<laughs> I have a question. So yep. when, when you were at the theater school, did you find like your people? Did you find your tribe, your group or no? Or how did you, I guess. I found like little pieces okay. uh, in, in and out of the theater school. I, uh, uh, I'm really happy that I had a really diverse set of friends. I didn't have like a core group. Um, I, I never had like a, a group where like somebody would say, Hey, we're going to go do this thing. And that just automatically meant that I was invited like that kind of thing. But I had a lot of diverse friends. I was, as you met, as mentioned, like, uh, my roommate, uh, Chris, my roommate in, uh, uh, Monroe, we wound up being roommates for four years. Um, and would often uh, go and hang out with his crowd. He would, he once or twice, he went to a theater school party, but it was just not his jam. Um, I was friends with a lot of the theater studies people. I was friends with a lot of theater tech people. Uh, I was actually really close friends with John Bridges. Uh, oh, really? Uh, and Doc O'Malley. Um, O'Malley, boss. I try to remember his name. <laughs> Doc O'Malley. O'Malley. I remember you being friends with the, That's the dean, right? The guy, the head? Uh, or he was uh, the head? He was... He was dean of something. Big. He was not the he was not the dean of the theater school. That was John Watts while we were there. Oh. Uh, but Doc O'Malley was he was the head of the uh, HDL program. Um, so he taught all of the classes of history, dramatic literature for undergrad and graduate. And then I found out later while I was his TA that the graduate. The, the graduate requirements for history of dramatic literature, we would have died. Oh my God. <laughs> it was so intense really? what they had to go through. Oh yeah. They're, they're final for, uh, uh, for the graduate program. Their final was insane. Uh, I proctored that test twice. And wow. uh, the first time I just looked, I like looked through the test and just went through it to see how well I could do. And uh, it was, it was nuts. There's an in, immense amount of reading that they had to, it, and memorization. They had. Per, but anyhow, that's who, those were my friends where I could hang out whenever and wherever I wanted. And that was kind of a privilege. For, forgive this really impertinent question, but do did <laughs> the HDL students who worked this hard, their only career path was to be a professor, right? I mean, what, no, no. Okay. What um, else did they do? No, it was uh, anybody who was in the master's program had to get through uh really? the advanced hdl so directors oh, uh, wow. the I, I think the actors had a slightly different test if i'm remembering correctly i might be making things up because brains are funny things <laughs> um but no i re i remember proctoring like i remember proctoring when david mold was taking his and <sighs> I can't remember. She was a director. She was a graduate director student. Shauna Flanagan, uh, Allison Zell. Yes, Shauna Flanagan. Thank you. <laughs> this is so fun. They, they come up at uh, I was about to say like this very lithe, redheaded woman and like, yeah, yeah Shauna Flanagan. That was her. <laughs> well, I was, it was uh, quick because the very last person we interviewed, Patrick Belton, he also was, he thought she was blonde. He was also struggling to remember her name. So it's been on the tip oh. of my tongue. <laughs> Wait, was she blonde or redheaded? No, she was redheaded. No, she was oh. very 
very okay. Irish red. I mean, she couldn't have been I more. She was like, she looked Irish like the girl the from Brave. You know, I mean, she had yeah. like the long. <laughs> she was. Yeah. She was a Disney princess yes. before Disney. Yes, knew. Yeah. she was. She was great. Wait, so I, so okay. Two memories, two distinct memories I have about you. Well, one of them has just been oh, thrown out the window, which was that I thought you were roommates with that guy who I think his name was David. And his last name. I know with who it. you're yeah. talking about. Anyway, and like he would, like he would joke about the fact that it's like, well, if I don't make it here, I'll just play fiddler on the roof for the rest of my yes, living. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that's that's it. that's who it is. But the other yeah. thing is that you were really into sleight of hand. Oh God! <laughs> and did you also roll your own cigarettes? Uh, for a little while, yeah. Okay. Uh, rolling cigarettes, that I think it's just a phase that every young smoker goes through. Okay, okay. Um, Possibly. Oh, you, you, were... why are you why are you laughing about the sleight ah, of hand thing? I loved that. Um, I think it's because one of the it I hadn't even thought about this, but now that you bring it up, one of the reasons why I was eager to go to theater school was to leave magic behind. Um so I remember like nervous habit of practicing. I still fidget like a mofo with my hands and my fingers. And like, I flip pens around. Um, I, I, I don't do the spinners, <laughs> but um, I have other like basically little ADD toys mm-hmm. <laughs> that I'll play with while I'm working. Um, and coin work in sleight of hand is very, very similar, like in rolling and palming and transitioning from palm to palm. Um yeah, I remember doing that, but you don't do it anymore. Yeah, I don't. The backstory behind that, and I don't know if you ever knew this. It, I don't know. I, I I remember I was kind of even loath to talk about it for a little while. Uh, was during we mentioned getting a job uh, while I was in high school proper. One of the last jobs that I had for three years was initially being a magician's assistant uh, at a theme park. For a for a production company, so <clears throat> Six Flags over Texas. Um, uh, uh, I grew up in Arlington, Texas. In Arlington, by the way, yeah, fun yeah. fun statistic about Arlington at that time, which is if you lived through your teen years in Arlington, I think that I think the numbers were like four out of five every uh, four out of five teenagers, all of them either worked at Six Flags the water park or the baseball park, the ranger stadium. Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm. I've been to all of those places many times. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you survived. I did. We should should have a different podcast. We can call it. I survived six flags. (laughs) Absolutely. That is actually the best six flags just for those. It it is. It's the only one that deserves to be called six flags. That's right. That's another step. Um, Okay. So magic. So you, so you let it go. I did magic for three years because it paid incredibly well. Um, And then as it happened, my senior year and also leading from the summer between my senior year and the year that I went to North Texas, uh, my boss, who I learned a ton from, and I don't mean just sleight of hand in business, uh, I mean like how to be a professional, like how to conduct yourself as a a professional in a theater. Um, I learned a ton from him and I was really, really shocked. that he was fired unceremoniously because on, and it happened to be my day off. I wasn't there. And I'm not saying if I was that I would have backed him up or anything, but he had just, apparently he had like two or three bad shows in a row and he had a full on breakdown (gasps) and like was yelling 
at the crowd. He did a Kramer. Uh, yeah, I guess. <laughs> I'm not even sure what that means. Oh, that wasn't a huge Michael, Michael, the guy went bonkers. And, but anyway, go. Oh, oh yeah, I remember that. Oh, oh my God. God. Um, no, I don't think any racial no, slurs were. but involved, I mean, he but, freaked out. Um, he, he really... Uh, he essentially just got so frustrated because he wasn't getting anything and he, and obviously he wasn't feeling it. He wasn't in it. Um, and he, and he just had a couple of words to this day. I don't know what they were. Um, but I knew, I do know, I heard this from several people that he said, okay, show's over. Thank you. And he walked off stage like halfway through the show was, the show was only 20, 25 minutes. Most. Okay. This is a, this, this is, is a screenplay. I'm like, yeah. I'm like thinking about this. About Gina. the falling yeah. down. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. We're going to write a whole backstory so, about this yeah. guy. It's going to be great. Check us out. So, 2023. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. So the short of it was they, uh, I love him. I, I love, they him. called me, uh, his, the production company who, who paid us called me. And it said like, okay, you need to get in here right now because Michael apparently had a total breakdown. Uh, and then I get into the park and I know a lot of the, we work for the production company. The, the theater was managed. So the ushers, uh, the theater was managed by park employees and they work for a specific department of the park. I was very good friends with a lot of people in that department. And as soon as I was in the park, somebody spotted me and they got on a walkie talkie and then there were like two I don't know. Supervisors. We're all damn teenagers. How can any right? <laughs> how right, can any of them right, be a real supervisor? Because right, right. they had a walkie-talkie. Uh, anyway, talkie. That's what made them a supervisor. They had a walkie-talkie, <laughs> and they got to wear long pants. There you go. There you <laughs> no go. shorts. <laughs> no shorts. No shorts for supervisors. <laughs> um, and uh, and they came over and they said we had like fifteen guests that came to Park Services and complained that he ruined their entire day. Oh my god! Uh, and they. And they demanded refunds. And wow. I don't know what you remember about Six Flags, Gina, but Six Flags does not give refunds. I would not imagine that they would. <laughs> They'd be like, here's a free chalupa. Go, so, get on with so, your life. Yeah. <laughs> here's your funnel cake. Ooh. I would take, I would take payment and in your, funnel cake. Oh, oh curly fries. Yeah, I could do yeah. that. <laughs> Um, so they, uh, anyway, they demanded his head. So uh, you took over? Produ- did you take over? And so the, and the production company had me in the office the next day and the oh, did they steamroll me. They were, uh, they were like, okay, we need you to come in. Uh, you have to, we only have one. We only had one other assistant. So he and I were then on the hook to work. I think we worked, we started keeping track of it as a joke. I think we worked 34 days in a row, uh, without a break. Uh, wow. Oh my God. The sweatshop and, uh, magicians. Just, <laughs> yeah. Six shows a day. Uh, uh, only two, <laughs> only two costumes. So, oh God. Sweating. Um, no, yeah. The smell it was, was probably. It was lovely. <laughs> um, oh my God. That's fantastic. So anyhow, but, they, but I say all of that because they gave me so much money to do that. There, I was, I couldn't say no. Uh, there was no way. And then I wound up over that summer training another assistant and then ultimately training my own replacement and just throwing money in a sock uh, because I knew that I, I knew at that point that North Texas was not going to be it. Um, and so then by the time that I by the time that I was at North Texas, I was able to pretty much leave that back. I went back and did a couple of shows a couple of days. Um, but at the end of North Texas and being accepted to DePaul and looking at that summer. Uh, I was like, okay, all I have to do now is sell my car um, 
and take all of this cash, all my magic cash. Magic cash. Um, <laughs> and, and I can go to, uh, I got most of my first year paper. Holy, but uh, so can you tell me the, cr- the cringe part is that he had a breakdown and you replaced him or? Yes, okay. we were very good friends oh. uh, up until that day. And I, be- and I honestly, I've spoken to him maybe twice since that happened. Holy guacamole. Um, because it was so, so ugly. Like I, and I really couldn't, I couldn't believe it. And then I'm not going to get into it, nope. but he, he like talked shit uh, about us uh, from people, oh. not from people who would gain to like stoke that rivalry, but from friends in common. And they're like, yeah, I don't know what happened to the guy. Oh uh, my gosh. So anyhow, but yeah, we, we just, it's funny that, uh, I mean, I guess it's like a positive or a negative experience at theater school, which is you take what you can learn from that and carry that forward the good things yeah and then and then you got to learn from the bad things too which is you know mm-hmm. a breakdown is unavoidable we've all been there right right <laughs> did you bradley did you get warned and all that were you on did warning the warning system that whole were you scared <gasps> i was never on warning i'm sorry i was privileged um, no, well, you I debunked with... one of our myths, which is I, I for a while I thought everybody got warned because everybody we talked mm. to had been warned. But... Bradley, you did not get. You're like you're like a magic unicorn. <laughs> oh, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, so let's 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 button that up. Which is by the time that I came to the theater school, I was hoping very much that I would never have to do magic for a living ever again, right. and I haven't. Oh, um, right. Congratulations. Oh. <laughs> so you got that out of it. And you never asked, they never asked you to do it in a, in a role. They never asked me to do it in a role. Um, I would occasionally sneak like little things in. Like I remember uh, second year workshops. Uh, we were doing a show and there was, I was a, I was sort of a grifter, nasty character. And I had to sit on stage in plain view of the audience for, most of the show and at one point i took out a coin and oh. i would just do like a couple of little like manipulations this is coming with back it. to me what show try, was and it i would try very hard not to uh it was it was detective story yeah, That's i was about it. to say I was it, in that. it was the detective show it was detective story i was the, I was um, the shoplifter oh that's right you were <laughs> i remember yeah. you doing that it was really cool yeah. Oh, that's nice of you to say. Mm. Uh, I think it was as the uh, Lou Conti was the director, mm-hmm. and uh, some a couple of things actually that I carry forward with me that I learned from from Lou, uh, which is during that show. I don't know if he still does it or if he always did it or if he just did it during that show. But one of the things, his phrases, his key phrases, is he would say, uh, "It's becoming about um, right. when something became distracting." on stage so jen i don't know if you remember uh he asked all of the men in the show to get hats because this is detective story if you're listening to this podcast detective story is the precursor of every crime drama you have ever seen in your life mm-hmm. it was it's a bef- it it it's the blueprint for the procedural detective show correct um, and it's a, it's a stage play um and so you read it in a modern context and you're like, Oh, this is so cliche. I'm like, no, no, this is the seminal material. Right. Right. Um, and so, yeah, Lou Conti decided that'd be a good workshop play for second years. <laughs> it probably was. I don't remember if I saw it or not, but I'm sure it was great. Everything yeah. that Lou directed was good. 
Yeah, uh, yeah, he's really, really good guy. So one of the things that he would say, he, he had all the men get hats, and we all started rehearsing with hats, and it was clearly that time where like everybody's got to fidget, everybody's going to mess with, like, and it just. <laughs> and later in life, we'd learn the right term is way too much fucking business. Yeah, <laughs> um, right, right, right. And so, and so he would stop rehearsal and he would say, "Okay, this scene is becoming a scene about hats." <laughs> right, right, right. And it's not a scene about hats. <laughs> right. Um. And then so sometimes I would, and my and my chair was downstage. I was practically face to face with the front row of the audience. And at one point, like I think I that day, I think I'd been messing around with the coin a little bit too long. And he said to me, like quietly on the side, just like it, it's becoming a character about a coin or a character about sleight of hand. Right. I was like, oh, I got you. I hear you absolutely, one hundred percent. That's funny. Uh, Do you remember any so of he, your other shows, your other uh, workshops? I remember. I remember almost. All oh, you remember shows. all of them? Good. You're the, that's um, the first person yeah. who remembers them all. <laughs> yeah. Well, you have to like. So I know Luke Conti's was one workshop. Um, Shauna Flanagan directed me in one. Okay. I want to say. And by the way, thanks for prompting me with her name. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to remember it. Um, I can't remember if that was a workshop or if that was a black box, like third or fourth year. Um. I'm trying to remember all of them. One workshop was, I always get them confused. I think it was Bill Brown, who was the sort of guest director. Yes. He was a much, he's a very big guy with wonderful chest voice that could just knock you into the wall if you wanted. Um, uh, I know he, he directed a workshop. uh, I don't remember the name of it, but I remember it was, uh, Greeks versus Romans. Uh, Judy Evans, as we knew her back then, was uh, Troilus and it was yeah because it was it was a little bit of a play on Troilus and Cressida. I want to say. Were you Uh, in Epsom Downs? We all were in Epsom. I was not. Everybody who was cool. No, no no way, no way. (laughs) It It was was the the leftovers. Cool show. No leftovers. I mean, I remember Andrew Ramcharan in the hall. Am I thinking of the right play? Andrew Ramcharan in the hallway with a megaphone singing The Hills Are Alive. I don't (laughs) remember about that, but that's the play that I was described the whole time. I was just going like this. Watching the horses go by. I I think it was. I played a dead person. Oh, no. I played a a ghost. Well, you know, Jen, you know, there are no small parts. That's right. (laughs) Yes, there are. Bradley. Yes, there are. <laughs> there are. There absolutely are. Um, or what was actually that was one of John Bridges' stories, which is I, I guess there was a. Uh, it was. I don't think it was a student because, or I don't know if John Bridges, even the great John Bridges, would say this. Uh, but he said something to the effect of, uh, "There was a student that had to appear naked on stage," and at one point, John Bridges said to that student, "Remember, there are no small parts." just small actors with small parts. And that's, and that's John Bridges legacy right there. Right I there. just pinned that, pinned that to the wall. Wow. What was your favorite show that you did? Um, I don't know that I could peg a favorite, but I could tell you why I favored each one. Sure. Um, I, I thought about this a little bit, so I'm sorry, I'm cheating. Um, oh, that's good. We did a musical, Merrily We Go Along, 
that was the most fun that I had in a rehearsal process uh, of any show I think I'd done to date. Wow. And thank God that was senior year too. Yeah. Um, so kind of like, I, I don't know that I did particularly well, um, but working with uh, Jim, uh, Jimmy Driscoll, uh, Eric Slater, Louise Rosette. Oh God. I there was, um, I'm, this is terrible. Uh, there was another woman who was a main part of the cast and I know her name, but I'm just not remembering it right now. And that's dishonorable, but, uh, we had so much fun rehearsing that, uh, it was, it was a productive, collaborative, creative process where Betsy, uh, and Mark Elliott just let us go often and some really cool things came out of it. Um, some not cool things came out of it and, you know, they railed it in or reined it in. Um, but, uh, that was a great process. I think, uh, one of my favorite shows was sisterly feelings. That was my oh, junior year. Um, yeah. and I played, I played the handsome Brit guy yes. and it was really easy for me to do a half Hugh Grant impression <laughs> and mm-hmm. that that got me farther than it should have. But, uh, but a couple of reasons why I remember it too, actually. Can I, do we have time for two or you guys guys have to edit this? Holy crap. That's all right. That's Uh, right. Sure. Two two huge memories from that one. And this is one of the things that I think about a lot. What, uh, when I'm doing voiceover and when I'm warming up and when I'm working through material, uh, in that, and this has nothing to do with the play. Uh, in that play, there was a scene. The construction behind me has started up. I hope you can't hear it too much. Can't hear it at um, all. In the play, there's a scene where there we had a scene that is on a a wooden park bench, like the old, like wrought iron edge ends with wooden slats that connect them. That makes the bench, the seat of the bench, the back of the bench. We had a scene where a woman named Sarah Charapar, mm-hmm. Charapar. Mm-hmm. I might be saying her name wrong. Charapar. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I, oh my God. I was, I was petrified of her. She was so strong uh, and so good. And, you know, take those two things and, and you show up with any, even uh, with, with any less of a game than that. And uh, it, it, I, I was just, I was incredibly intimidated by her and it just got worse when we we're on this park bench, she's sitting on the bench and I'm kneeling behind the bench sort of with my arm over it, like leaning on it. And we're having uh, this prelude to a kiss uh, scene. And uh, we were in the Merle Reskin and we're not miked. That's a big house. Um, and she was just speaking, just speaking normally. And just for a minute, I was completely taken out of the scene because I could feel all the resonance of her voice in the wood of that bench. Like, I mean, like she was, her voice was, and she wasn't screaming. She wasn't booming or belting. She just had the resonance um, and that frequency. And she filled up that hall and, you know, we all could, we could cheat it. uh, If we couldn't, if if we couldn't do it legitimately, we had our tricks. Um, but she was just making that bench vibrate. And I, 
for whatever reason, I've always remembered that. Just what an amazing voice wow. um, and 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 carrying it too. Um, that's something I think about a lot. That's something that st- still affects me when I work. Of like, where's my voice? Is it in my throat? Is it in my nose? Is it, it? Am I? How deep in my chest is it? How relaxed is my chest? And am, am I able to get that resonance now? And and does the work that I'm doing call for that? Mm. Um, anyway, did you? Uh, and the other one oh, is sorry, go ahead. sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. Finish. Go ahead. The other one from that same show is when we were rehearsing. I don't know if you remember that show, but I had I also had to strip. Thankfully, not naked. Um, no, I. But don't I had to go. That. I I had to go down to my shorts um, in a strip tease. Oh. Uh, and uh, I, I kind of we hinted at it earlier, like. I didn't have like a super close tight group of friends at the theater school, but it was cool that people would emerge when you needed them. Mm. Um, I, and maybe that wasn't for everybody, but for me, it happened often enough. And the first time that we were rehearsing and Bill Burnett was the director and the voice coach. Is that, mm-hmm. Do I have that right? Yeah, you yes. have that right. Um, yeah, Bill Burnett was directing and he informed me that this was the rehearse. This is the first rehearsal when I was going to have to strip. Uh, I was going to have to go all the way down to the, uh, to the jockeys. Um, and so we got to the scene and of course I'm not in it. Uh, I'm not even, I'm just like spitting the lines out. Thank God I'm off book and not connecting, not doing anything. I'm just thinking about like, I'm about to have to do what is scripted as an awkward strip scene, but I don't care how it's scripted. Mm-hmm it involves me being down to my jockeys. And, uh, and so I start it and I start taking off my shirt and I look off to the side of our rehearsal space. And there is Lee Kirk, uh, Sean Gunn, TJ. And John Cabrera. And I think Alex Blatt. And I think John Cabrera was there too. And as I took my shirt off, they all took their shirts off. Oh, so sweet. I love and that. And then as I had to take my pants off, they oh, all took their pants off. The and I was like, this is this kind of cool. I'm like, <laughs> that's awesome. I haven't, I'm, I'm just, uh, it might be cold in here, but I'm surrounded by warmth. Yeah. Um, and that's so kind sweet. of, that really got me through. And I was like, I was really, I thought it was just so cool of all of them to do that. Um, I don't know what the story behind it was, like if one of them came up with it, if it was in the moment, but uh, but it hardly matters. It was just so awesome of them to do that. That's a great memory. They were probably all putting themselves in your shoes and saying how they would feel <laughs> if they had to do that, and they would yeah. want yeah. they would want some support. I just I was inspired yeah. to look up that show because I I remember the name, but I had you know I don't remember it the show, and it had yeah mm-hmm. all the people that you said plus Georgina Stoyles, which is a name that I haven't thought of. <gasps> oh my god. Yes. Georgina Stoyles is uh, the wonderful one, the wonderful Brit. Yes, she uh, was fantastic. I, I've never, I haven't thought about her since we were in school, and I'd like mm. to follow up with her. You also mentioned uh, Jimmy Driscoll, which the name came right back to me as soon as you said it. But what, mm-hmm. was he an actor? Yes, he was. He was an MFA actor. Oh, okay. Um, he was <laughs> actually Jimmy. Speaking of, uh, I remember. Uh, so I'm from the South. I'm from Texas. Uh, moving to Chicago was a huge transition. Like I didn't know. I, I My first year, I remember telling other people, I didn't know what to be concerned about. 
when I lived in Chicago that first year. Like uh, I would walk down the street and I would see a group of, you know, African-American men or uh, Latino men or, or whomever walking the other way. And it just wouldn't phase me at all. Uh, I, I really didn't care. And like other people I could see were getting a little bit nervous. And then we turned left on Clark and a group of, you know, white guys wearing suspenders and plaid flannel would come the uh, come walking the other way. And I would say, I, I, I want to cross the street. <laughs> I wow. don't want to be here. Uh, I don't want to be anywhere near these guys. Um, and so that that's definitely something that I dealt with in my first year. I think it was, so Jimmy was an MFA actor. So that means that we, I would have seen him first my second year. And if you recall, he would sit out in front of the theater school, having, having his cigarette. He had, he had a denim jacket. Yep. He wore a, a weave trucker cap. He had mirror sunglasses. Yep. He had this, he was, he's like a big barrel chested guy. Uh, and this really just thick ass beard. And somebody told me he was from Oklahoma and just from a distance, I was like, I don't want to have anything to do with that guy. Wow. I don't want, wow. uh, I don't want it. I don't want to be near him. I don't want to deal with his Southern bullshit. Um, I mean, like, seriously, I was casting. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, it was, it was kind of ugly. He it's was like, the I would, villain. I would he not, was your villain. I mean, like, remember how, remember how poor we all were? Yes. <laughs> um, so I wouldn't even bum a cigarette from him. Uh, and uh, and then I think at the end of the second year or maybe third year, uh, we were we were eventually in the same class. And that's when I first met him. And within 10 minutes was like such a facepalm for me of like, oh, my God, I can't believe I thought what I thought mm. of this man. I, I can't believe that uh, I've, I've harbored this uh, apprehension anytime that I was close to him for this long, just thinking that he was, you know, what he, what he looked like to me coming from a certain area, um, which was like, you know, putting cards on the table. I thought he was a hillbilly. Oh, I thought he was a racist. Right. I thought he was, I, I thought he was like the kind of guy that I moved away from Texas to get away from. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And, uh, and no, turns out in <laughs> incredibly talented, mm. sweet, warm man. Um, and just this killer voice. If you were in his section, the year uh, for, for, uh, for musical theater and and you got through that whole year without crying or at least getting gooey while he sang, then you just don't have a heart because wow. he was just an amazing voice. Uh, uh, he absolutely going back to merrily. We roll along. He played Frank wow. uh, and, he, and he killed it. He absolutely crushed it. He was so good in that. Wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Did Theater you, stories. <laughs> do you, I love to ask um, if you remember anything about the show, shows that you crewed the shows that i crewed uh what did i do i remember i only remember two really did we have to do one or three i think we did three I didn't we one, i think we did three yeah or at least two but maybe three okay i remember i really only have a memory of two of them one of them was we would just go in Oh, I remember what the third one was. One of them, I don't remember the play at all. We would just go in and change the lights. And then all of us first years would just sit in the green room and fuck around for <laughs> for the rest of, of the show. There was nothing to do during the show. 
for uh, similarly for another one, which was a workshop called Emerald City. Oh yeah, but it was a workshop that was allowed to be at the Merle Ruskin. It was not in a black box. Uh, and I remember the that play actually had a huge effect on me in, in terms of being a writer later. There were a couple of thoughts that were presented in it that, that stuck with me. But same kind of deal. We would set up, we, they had this plexiglass uh, set pieces that were hung from the, the, from the, uh, from the rafters yes. or from, yep. the, uh, mm-hmm. from my house. And uh, because they were plexiglass, they just picked up fingerprints like nothing else. So crew was really just getting out there with Windex and stainless steel steel cleaner and getting them as clean and spotless as we possibly could. And then you'd back away and like, nobody touch it, nobody touch it. <laughs> and, and then they would raise it up. And uh, that was the, I guess that was the sort of reflective, shiny jewel material for Emerald City. And then the last one, which I remember very clearly was I was a spotlight operator for Into the Woods. Okay, I crewed into the woods as well. I was so on. I. Uh, yeah, Buzz, I was... were we both on makeup or costumes? I think we were on makeup or yeah, makeup. yeah. The answer is yeah. we were together. I just remember yeah. all the pretty ladies. I, it was a good thing because you're isolated, but it was kind of a bad thing because, like, I never, I never knew you guys crewed that. <laughs> right? I, yeah, because no, you were. Would, yeah, yeah, I that would, makes sense. I would get to the theater. You know, you would go uh, uh, to get up to the spot house or whatever it's called the, the spot room it's like the highest point mm-hmm. and the furthest back point in the theater so you have to go all the way up the super narrow mm-hmm. stairs what some of us used to call the racist stairs um and climb all the way <laughs> to the top uh of the oh I'll, I'll, you don't have to put it in the podcast but i'll explain that here in a okay. second <laughs> Yeah, and you had to cr- and basically climb up these steep, narrow stairs all the way up to the top of the house and then climb another little set of stairs to the back. And you're in this little room. Um, yep. And the I can't remember. There was another operator in there with me. He was also a first year. Tom. Tom was his name. Tom Lemaire? Uh, yeah. Well, now I can't. Now we've said his name, so I can't say what I thought about oh. him. Oh, shit. But Sorry. <laughs> we can cut it out. No, you know what? No, no. His name was not Tom Lemire. It was not Tom No, because Tom, was a, was, Tom. Tom was a, um, a Tom Lemire was a, was a grad student. Oh. Okay, then. Okay, so th- for those listening, we're not talking about Tom Lemire. <laughs> um, but his name was Tom. He was a first-year acting student. He was in my section. We didn't get along. He was cut. There's no, there, there, there's no conflict. Don't conflate those two things. Right. Um, but he was, he was not great company. So it was fine to just be in that spot house and not talk much. And I don't know how you got picked for that, but uh, I would imagine that part of it was you're just, you always had, and I, and I say this as a person who knows that sometimes when a young person is very mature, it's be it's not for the greatest reasons, but I, <laughs> but I remember you being quite yep. mature. And, and now that you're saying wow. that you developed friendships and I understand you worked for Doc O'Malley and you were, you know, you TA yeah, for him yeah. or you worked with John Bridges, but you did. It's very easy for me to see how you would both be able to relate to your peers as well as your yep. professors and stuff yeah. like that. So probably that's how you got that spotlighting job. <laughs> Could be. Could be. <laughs> so, so we almost have to wrap up, but just, Okay. In in the rear view. So when you graduated, did mm-hmm. did was how long did you spend? I mean, did, were you trying to pursue a career in Hollywood? Mm-mm. What did you Never. do right after graduation? Uh, I really wanted to continue doing theater very badly. I never thought that I had uh, the face for film. 
Um, and in fact, Elizabeth Geddes, who was my agent coming out of school, uh, she actually said a couple of, she made a couple of comments to me that indicated to me that I was not cut out for film work. Really? Um, really? And, you know, uh, you know what? She wasn't necessarily wrong. She wasn't necessarily right. But here's the thing. I believed her. Right. So um, I went, uh, I pursued theater work. I got a decent amount of theater work um, for at least two years out of school um, and the occasional industrial, uh, even even a couple of voiceovers. But uh, nothing huge, nothing like planet moving. And the whole time I was tending bar uh, to make end meet, ends meet. In Chicago, uh, this was? In Chicago. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I didn't leave Chicago. Uh, and then about like two or three years on, like everything just, everything was gone, right? So I had student loans, the, uh, a crushing amount of student loans. Um, at that time in my life, I stopped answering my house phone, uh, mm-hmm. which I think is something that a lot of people can relate to. Mm-hmm. But uh, I just, I hate it. I hated that my house phone would ring and I would realize I don't want to answer it because it's probably a, a debt collector mm-hmm. or somebody who wants me to refinance. Um, and I was... Uh, within a month, within a month of being evicted out of my apartment and I had no plan and I didn't want to go to my friends and say, can I crash on your couch? Although Mm -hmm. in retrospect, I had friends who absolutely would have let me do that. Um, And I just didn't know what I was going to do. And I figured, okay, uh, two things happened in rapid succession. So the first thing that happened was a company that I worked for that I attended bar for called me and said, we're about to open a new location. Um, and we want you to come and open this bar. And uh, that's a that's a three-month job. And you mostly just live on the premises. Um, but it pays a lot of money. Um, so I did that. <clears throat> that got me out of the immediate trouble. But I had no theater work whatsoever. And I just had a hard think about it and thought, well, I can't do this anymore. I, I better start getting a real job. Uh, a quote-unquote real job. So... Uh, I went into, I knew a lot about tech. Uh, I was, I always had an affinity for that. Um, obviously I've, I've offered to try and help you with posts. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, a family friend, uh, got me an interview with a consultancy that was hiring very junior people and paying them very, very well and letting them, giving them the opportunity to learn up and train up. And I wound up doing that. I wound up becoming a consultant for, uh, two years at that company. And then I moved to New York, uh, by invitation for consulting. Uh, and that became almost a 10 year affair. Wow. And then, uh, and then I moved from consulting into traditional marketing and then writing. And now I, uh, now I do a lot of writing and editing. <clears throat> I still have the tech chops, which comes in handy. I still have this amazing voice. You do. Um, yes, you do. <laughs> Uh, which only a couple of years ago did I start uh, my friend, Julia Nippon, who is a wonderful uh, voice actor here in New York. And uh, we, we, our paths crossed very, very randomly. Uh, and uh, she's been doing extremely well in voiceover for a couple of years. And a few years ago, I said, like, I've, I miss this so much. This, uh, it feeds me. I remember why. I did it, you know, like if you've been away from it for as long as I have, 
and then suddenly you're working with a piece of material and you connect with it the right way and you do the playback and you hear it um there's that's that's just better than sex um and so i've been working on that for the last year it's not the it's not the full-time job it is not paying the bills um but i get up every day around you know five or six uh, and I look at any sides that my agent has sent me and I figure out like I can do that. I'm, most of the time I can do all of them. Sometimes I'm like, I, <laughs> uh, I can't, I can't say it. I, I would, I'll occasionally get like a sound alike audition and it's for an actor who I like. And part of me goes like, I don't want to disgrace that person no. <laughs> by doing a shitty impression of them. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but anyway, yeah. And I knock them out and usually get everything like recorded and edited for auditions, just for auditions. Uh, I get that knocked out by 10 or so. And then I do my day job for as long as I can stand it. And, and I'm old enough now and I have enough, uh, stance in, in my business that I'm like, okay, I'm, I, it's seven o'clock. I'm not working anymore today. Uh, Good for that's, you. that's, that's, that's a privilege. Thank you. It's a privilege, and I recognize that. Yeah, Yeah. it is. It is definitely a privilege. Well, one of the things that we have found in almost every person we've spoken to, people who have pursued, let's say, a variety of things in addition to acting post-school, it never really leaves. It's like, for example, Jonas Avery says – he's uh, he's Jonas. yeah oh, we, he, interviewed, he, yeah. we interviewed him he says he's performing as a teacher he you know teaching yeah. has a great amount of performance in it sure. or patrick belton i mean he does also act but he performs as a dj and mm-hmm. tate smith performs as a bartender like you you end up finding yeah. a job where there is a performance element to it because you can't I mean, you can ignore it, but after a while it starts to really wear on you and you it's it, it's almost like a, a it's a it's a feed the meter situation with creating. You've got mm-hmm. to feed the meter, or you really feel depleted. At least yeah, I do. Yeah. So you're still I, you're feeding the meter. I feel it a hundred percent, and then I get really good feedback from my partner, um, who's, I mean, she's just so good uh, because she has no problem saying things like, uh, <laughs> I think after a, a, it was a couple of. Uh, I had a very bad, my 2020 has sucked. Everybody's 2020 has sucked. There's a couple of things happened in the early part of the year. Really, really suck. And uh, uh, after I got back and set up my blanket fort and started getting a little bit more aggressive about what I was doing, um, at one point I, I came out from under the fort and Noelle was waiting for me. Um, and she was like smiling and shaking her, shaking her head at me. And I was like, what's going on? And she was like, you know, you've been a broken man for two months and you just recorded three auditions you know you haven't even booked anything and you're a different person. yes uh, yes and i was like yeah you're right <laughs> so, that's wonderful um, yeah and she's wonderful um and i'm very again we're talking a lot about privilege and luck uh i'm very i'm really lucky that I have somebody this close to me who can, can render that when, when it's necessary and can also kick you in the ass. So which is most people also need. Love it. Love it. <laughs> Bradley, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. Of I will, I will uh, definitely follow up with you about your sound recommendations. Yeah. Just let me know.
I Survive Theatre School is an Undeniable Inc. production. Jen Bosworth-Ramirez and Gina Polici are the co-hosts. This episode was produced, edited, and sound mixed by Gina Polici. Follow us on Instagram at Undeniable Writers or on Twitter at Undeniable W-R-I-T-1. That's Undeniable Write without the E-1. Thanks. Thanks.